Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, from Wise Blood, Wise Blood, aka Natalie Murring, but Wise Blood. And we are going to be talking about all sorts of stuff. It's a real fun conversation, uh, punk, and, and we get into it. We get into it. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at Left for Damien. There's a Facebook page, a YouTube page, and a TikTok page for this show. All of those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on their respective platforms, and we put up stuff uh, like little videos and things like that. Uh, if you want to find um, a way to support the show, tell your friends about it. Let everyone you know uh, know that there's this podcast where they talk to people about punk, and they do one to two episodes a week, sometimes two, less two these days. Uh, I also play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. We are going to be going on tour in the United States in October with The Damned, Better believe I hope I get a podcast episode of this one. A huge honor to be going on tour with these guys. This is a, uh, yeah, they're like my, my my favorites, one of my all-time favorites. But anyway, we'll, we'll talk about more of that as we get closer. Uh, we also have records and all sorts of stuff. You can find out more information, as I said, over at fuckedup.cc. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, Wise Blood is here. Someone I'm a big fan of her music. And knowing that she kind of came out of Philadelphia punk rock, someone I've always wanted to kind of have on the show. Um... I don't want to spoil anything, so I don't want to talk about too much stuff in advance, but definitely check out Wise Blood's last record that came out last year. It's fantastic. Check out all Wise Blood's records, but the uh, the End in the Darkness, Hearts Aglow on Sub Pop Records is a album well worth your time, as is all the other Wise Blood's records. And uh, that is it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Wise Blood. On Turn Out of Punk. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I've wanted to talk to you for a, a long time because, um, you know, I've been, I've been a fan of your work for a while, but knowing that you came out of the Philly kind of punk DIY scene, it's, it seems like a natural thing that you come on the show at some point. So I'm glad it's finally happening. Yeah. Well, I got to start off the way they all start off, though, which is, Natalie, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? I was, you know, I guess as like a very, very young kid in the 90s, like Green Day when Dookie came out and I was dyeing my hair with food coloring. You know, I'd like go to Disneyland when I was six years old, but I'd dress punk to go to Disneyland to kind of show <laughs> off. And then the, you know, food dye hair color job would melt in the sun and I'd just end up with like a crazy like blue neck and a blue face. Um so that was maybe like some of the more twilight memories. And then I, in middle school, I think it was around seventh grade that I started identifying as a freak. I was like, Oh, this is what it looks like to go to hot topic and like dress different. But, um, but there were some punks at my school and I went to some punk shows and I bought fresh fruit for rotten vegetables, the dead Kennedy's record. And then I got some, you know, steel toed boots and like, the rest is history kind of after that. I went pretty head in into it. So when you got into punk, what was it about it that kind of drove you into it? I guess what were you into before punk music? What were some of the other musics you were kind of gravitating to? I mean, I really loved like 
as a, as a kid, I loved grunge. I loved Nirvana. I loved like Chumbawamba and like Jeff Buckley and just like stuff in that vein. And then I think when music started shifting towards like Matchbox 20, Hanson, Spice Girls, I just kind of wasn't there for it. I wasn't feeling it. And especially when, you know, Britney Spears and NSYNC and that stuff got really big. That was a huge moment for me to be like, what happened? So I kind of got into classic rock first because that was like what they played on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. And then kind of from there, I noticed that, you know, if, you wanted to feel something that was new and had a lot of energy. It was like at a local punk show and it was, yeah, it was kind of like, I don't know. There's just so many different moments of being tipped off on the culture that uh, I think it's so ingrained into the culture that we live now that it might've been, you know, just already in the water. Well, yeah, like it did, it does feel like after it initially kind of hits that it, permeates all aspects of culture like you know vivian westwood you know julian temple films penelope spheris films it was just all around us yeah and i think with new wave and like my dad was like very much a new waver so he kind of was on the fringes and the periphery of that energy too and i remember one halloween he dressed up as a punk and put like a safety pin in his nose or something (laughs) so i was i feel like i'm just young enough to where it was just like this common ground. And then we would, you know, the little shows and the punks that kept sprouting up in towns, like they literally, we would refer to each other as sprouts because we knew we were part of this greater lineage that kind of went back to the seventies and, you know, it still had this purpose, but it also felt very fresh. Well, and I love your dad's record. So I was definitely wanting to bring that up at some point. Oh, no way. That's cool. You heard my dad's record. Well, I'd seen it before in the stores, but I'd be honest if I said I had hadn't listened to it prior to like knowing that you were coming on and then i was like oh fuck i gotta dive into this record and it's awesome oh that's so sweet that's incredible that you heard it well and also the drummer was the drummer in ja wobble what yeah and and jack nietzsche produced it who did of course like the best germ session ever as well so it feels like like did he go to punk shows he must have right because it's so new wave it's so definitely punk definitely but you know he was so in the 70s before the sumner band he was really into stevie wonder and like paul butterfield blues band like he loved you know and tower of power like he was getting really into funk and i think the band that resonated with him the most was probably xtc mm-hmm. and and the talking heads because those bands were punk but they also had this kind of more melodic um, you know, like other music, like musical influences beyond just the kind of anthemic, you know, like steady beat Ramon stuff. So I feel like in some ways he is peripheral to punk, but maybe on the more kind of musically side of it, if that makes sense. Oh, hundred percent. I hear, I hear television in it too. Yeah. And wow, like, I never I, it's so cool to think of my dad that way, but yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's so neat because like I'm I'm the same not that my dad played in any sort of great new wave band or anything but like that, but I'm like kind of the same way as you, like where I'm I grew up with punk records in my house. Like it was uh just part of his culture in a way. He was a little bit too old to actively engage with it, but he went to the odd show and certainly bought some of the records, so 
like I grew up with it in the same way you did, where it was, I don't really know when I ever first came across it because it was always around me. Exactly. That That's how I feel. And I mean, I, I do remember Kurt Cobain really well. And I just feel like even though that was called something else, it still had the same kind of lineage spirit to it. And I, oh, I would say, yeah, that that was like such a mainstream, um, yeah, like moment. And it's like one of those on-ramp moments that, you know, the next generation of punk was kind of populated from. And yeah, like I look at them, Nirvana being the ultimate kind of outgrowth of that first wave of of punk and hardcore. And this is sort of the the climax of this sort of first musical explosion that kind of happens in in the late 70s. 100%. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, and also just kind of the dystopian quality of the whole thing like uh, i do feel like there is this the whole thing does kind of reek of like the failure of hippies and mm-hmm. how like punk kind of sprouted from yeah like kind of being in this weird purgatory of like um kind of nostalgic and super futuristic all at once and that's something i've always really related to that kind of tension and I think, yeah, there's so much tension within the ideologies of punk that it's like it made sense that it became more relevant as our culture kind of continued down its dystopian path. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely is weirdly like we're living in the lyrics to a Dick Kennedy song every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. And I don't, I feel like if, if Jello Biafra like got the, uh, you know, the like voice he deserved or something like if he wasn't such a cult hit, I feel like he would have been more in the conversation because he was saying a lot of, you know, big stuff a long time ago. Yeah. It's amazing. Like every conversation I have with him, I go back to it years later. I'm like, damn, he was right about that. Even though at times I'm like, there's no way, you know? Right. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, and ultimately he led to cannabis legalization in Canada because our big cannabis activist up here wasn't into weed till he heard Jello Biafra talk about it on a, a third spoken word record. So Jello, Whoa. he moves some cultural milestones, PMRC stuff, and he's a, an arbiter of our times. Definitely. Was it part of the decision for you to be on Sub Pop, the Nirvana? 100%. I mean, I always saw Sub Pop as like this extremely reputable record who also like appreciated big songs and you know, kind of the idea of um, the DIY, but, you know, kind of all grown up or something. And mm-hmm. and I, I appreciated that. Yeah, I think it was always like as a kid, that was like, you know, kind of the dream label. Yeah, I think like everything about it, the aesthetic, the vibe of it. And it's it's also like, once again, like a, a total, you know, obviously a very different label. And, and the Sonics they're putting out is, is, you know, not certainly not capital P punk in the presentation of it but at the same time it it always is that kind of like punk label like you're saying yeah i it's so funny now that my brain is going i it's like i could literally spend hours you know relaying all my like early punk memories because there were so many weird like you know like especially in movies now like remembering the movies like lost boys and And, you know, just like the eighties in general, kind of being sprinkled with like the punk archetype as this, you know, important figure and, and kind of youth culture. 
it, it is it's almost like it serves like a an archetypal like literary kind of purpose and like the way that like the fool or the hero there's yeah. the punk after the certain point <laughs> yeah totally and it, it, it's oh, sometimes yeah. for menace like in short circuit or, or or lost boys even but then it's also like jello by afra and it's sort of these weird cultural mainstream blips that pop up as these sort of punk people are these like truth tellers yeah yeah and also like you know there's there's an anger and there's an energy there like to return to one of your other questions like part of what attracted me so much to my local punk scene is is just the energy like it just felt like people were always on 10 and i noticed that it's like the punk world kind of attracted these troubled kids at school probably suffering from adhd who had so much intelligence just in the completely wrong place mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and i remember yeah there was kind of this intellectual bond um and yeah kind of this like um angst that i noticed doesn't seem to be as present in recent youth culture like i'm sure it's still there but it just felt like it was on you know 11 back then like it just it just felt like anything could happen at any time yeah like you're right and it's funny you bring up adhd because i think mental health plays such a huge part in punk and you know certainly speaking from my own personal experience but like attracting people that need it and it's such a positive thing because it's like here's something to do with your hands you know whether it's adhd or autism or depression or anxiety but yeah there's, there's just sort of like you're welcome and you can kind of like do what you want here and and use your mental health shit in a productive way you know like uh, maybe not to exploit your own trauma necessarily but like you can you can work through your trauma and through music you can work through yeah. your trauma through making a zine yeah and i mean yeah exactly like reinventing your world and claiming back um the medium of communication between people through zines and shows and you know i just really felt like that had so much to do with how sick the culture was in the mainstream like as the mainstream culture and consumer capitalism kind of became this like kind of low-grade you know fever religion that was just permeated through everything i really felt like it, it became so important right around puberty to like completely reinvent the future somehow and i think that's what so many punks were trying to do is like kind of reconcile um the death it's like a, in some ways, also like a strange kind of grieving process with a lot of hope, but it, it does to me represent the death of like kind of culture as, as we knew it in the 20th century sense. And it's like these tools that I think are now more readily available for everyone else. Um, you didn't have access to outside of getting into punk rock. Like the idea of like, like you're saying, like this group grieving process you can kind of do through creating music or a zine or a flyer or something like that like that is, you know you got into punk and then you learned how to do these skills now we have youtube or, or social different platforms where you can kind of like express yourself in a mass way that i couldn't think of too many places you could do that other than punk back then or be taken yeah. seriously at least doing it totally yeah 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 and i i mean it's also so deeply connected with art um I feel like a lot of the, the, the aesthetics kind of started, you know, in the fifties and sixties, um, in the art world. 
and kind of, you know, the relationship between the aesthetics of punk and mass production and like something like Andy Warhol and screen printing and, and kind of, you know, in some ways even influenced by propaganda, like imagery wise in terms of like, you know, mm-hmm. well, very much so. Yeah. And it's, so it's like that too is also this very, um, kind of reappropriation or reclaiming of, of the dystopian um, mass production into something that we could, you know, feel proud of or feel identify with comfortably. But it's weird how that also that dystopian kind of cynicism to commercialism, consumerism, capitalism also makes it rife for getting kind of assumed by those worlds like yeah you know like how many bands had 20 t-shirt designs in punk or 30 t-shirt <laughs> yeah, designs yeah, or, yeah. or you know are using images of of you know i think there's even a song by chumbawamba like using images of starving children to sell records because you'd slap a picture from you know a national geographic or or somewhere else onto the cover of your record oh and yeah just, yeah it so there's is this sort of like I don't know, like the sort of like I guess the, the, the paradox. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way of putting it. The paradox. And I mean, that is what we live in. Like mm-hmm. that, I think, is why punk manages to straddle both universes because all those kids and and the way it started, they weren't raised, you know, any other way besides capitalism, besides mass production, besides that kind of, you know, century of the self attitude. So it's like it's it can only be what we are. And so it's like by having those, you know, kind of ingredients, like, you know, kind of really great merch and really great aesthetics and and kind of this mass production conformity to some of the aesthetics, I think that is just a greater reflection of, of the, you know, people trying to process what we physically, you know, kind of can't escape. So you mentioned your local punk scene a little bit ago like where did you first kind of find yourself getting into shows going locally because you moved around a little bit as a kid right yeah i mean i didn't go to that many shows in california and once i moved to pennsylvania that was kind of my first exposure to hardcore and and punk bands like playing you know ymcas and middle school cafeterias and there'd be these you know hardcore was really popular so it's like i didn't you know there were like traditional punks always that like wanted to be the misfits or something, but there was always some kid with a devil lock, but there was definitely like (laughs) a lot of hardcore kids. Um, and screamo screamo was really big, uh, when I was coming up. So I'd go to these shows that would be like a strange conglomeration of like all of that. And there'd be the more traditional punk kids and then there'd be the straight edge kids and there'd be the hardcore kids. And then there'd be me who was kind of, you know, punk, but maybe starting to lean deeper into, um, you know, more experimental stuff. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I was always attracted to the more experimental kind of cultier punk stuff. And yeah, um, yeah that my first exposure to like seeing like kind of a noise band or like a punk band deconstruct what they do to the point of it not being recognizable as music anymore. That was like, I was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and there, and there's like such a huge scene for that in Philly too, or, oh, or yeah, totally. I guess Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania in general. And in the, uh, in the East coast, like that's the thing about punk is it gets taken up so differently by everyone. But to me, 
anything that came out of it, anything that connects to that lineage is part of it. So yeah, know, just like, you know, there's uh exploited and GBH there's, there's throbbing gristle and it's all punk, just like the hardcore stuff is. Yeah. And I mean, crass, like all mm. their, you know, philosophies about reality and like how that kind of tied in with a lot of goths I knew that were like practicing Wicca. Like it was just, you know, it was kind of like the, at the dawn of the internet, the golden age of the internet, where you could just look things up and find like communities of people that were into what you were into. It wasn't like this mass hot take social media situation. So I remember also feeling a lot of respect for some of the straight edge kind of DC because Philly's close to DC. So like Fugazi and Ian Mackay and those kinds of cl the cleaned up sentiment of that culture was also really appealing to me was like, kind of like, I am this little cadet, you know, who's, you know, not going to get like, ex not going to pull a Sid Vicious and, you know, stab my girlfriend, but I'm going to do the right thing and, and kind of live this moral compass lifestyle in regards to the culture. It's fascinating with Ian Mackay because he comes up on the show time and time again. And it's, it's almost like he, he's like a secular Jesus. To <laughs> he is, he is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, for sure, you know, like, you know, and it's like he gave us the the religious testaments in the form of these songs that people adhere to for their whole lives. Mm -hmm. And it, and you're right; it's very like it's such a different way of looking at the world than Genesis Peorge probably was looking at the world, or or you know Douglas Peace, or like any weird person that came out of this movement, or interesting person that came out of this movement. Jell Biafra, yeah. right? I can't imagine he'd have the same outlook as Ian Mackay. I know they don't. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just getting more aware of what was going on in England. Like, I think I kind of only knew much about the Sex Pistols, because I now I'm remembering, I did a project on the Nancy Spungen murder in seventh grade, and I made like a slideshow you know, like an early PowerPoint with wow. these graphic images. And yeah. I, I, I was obsessed with Nancy because she's from Ben Salem, which is uh, the town over from, um, you know, Dolestown. It's close to where I was living. And I like visited her grave and I went to the high school she went to. And I was just kind of fascinated by her story because it was, yeah, it was just all subversive, you know, kind of dark energy, like nothing redeemable, just like, just like, um, yeah, kind of the fringes of the culture. And I found that to be, um, you know, the polar opposite of the Ian, Ian Mackay sentiment. Mm -hmm. and, and once again, like an archetype too, that exists. There's always like the kid with the devil locks is always the kid that's trying to be Sid Vicious in, in their way. Yeah. Yeah. No, the traditional punks in my town had like zero supervision. Mm -hmm. They were from poor families. And basically they became, they, they were allowed to like turn the living room into a practice space and light stuff on fire, you know, in front of their house. Like that was part of why they were doing that, you know? And like my friends that were like good at school, they were more like listening to Fugazi and like going to hardcore shows and, and, yeah. pretend, and doing the straight edge thing. So it was like, there were also these very like distinct class kind of lines in the sand you know that cannot be ignored no there definitely can't be and i think but that's like said vicious from all accounts too like it's you're right there's it's such a horrible tale and it's 
such a tale that's baked into the history of punk. So you kind of have to come across it and, and investigate it in some way once you get immersed in this music because it is such a part of the story. But what a sad story. Like this poor woman that's ultimately murdered. And he, he you know, whether, and I, I know there's some people that don't believe Sid Vicious. Did yeah, it. of course. Of course. Yeah. No, I have to, I realized when I said that, that maybe I was stirring the pot a little bit. Well, no, I'm not, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I think either way, like we got to make sure that we talk about it in the right way because someone was all was killed. Yeah, totally. And, and uh, it is, yeah. So I went to the punk museum and they have all the Sid Vicious stuff up and I'm like, this, you got to take this stuff down or it's weird that you're celebrating this stuff. And then fat Mike's like, no, he didn't do it. There's no way he did it. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> there's this whole. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's I, I am fully like if I had to undo anything I said in the interview, I undo saying that he murdered her because I haven't looked into it since the seventh grade. So well it's hard. It's and I definitely now have looked into it a little bit and it's still incredibly hard to figure out. There's a, a documentary about it. Um, you know, once again, not to exploit this thing further, but there is a documentary about it that you can see on YouTube, which kind of points the finger at that actor Rockets Red Glare, who's in all the uh Jim Jarmusch movies or a few of the Jim Jarmusch oh, movies. Hey, very yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, we should move on to a much more pleasant topic. Who were. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that there's, there's um also like, I think reflected in like how long the lifespan of a punk is versus a boomer. Like if the boomers mm. might've been a little bit more kind of middle-class leaning in general, um, just based on the middle class having been bigger, I think that there's um, there's definitely like a noticeable uh, life expectancy uh, with them living longer, outliving the punks. There, there was certainly class issues at play and the survival rate of kids from these different scenes, like not as many kids made it out because they were uh or felt like fell victim to drugs or fell victim to violence that was around them just because of the financial situation they were raised in versus other scenes where they had the ability to build massive record labels and they had the resources to have great gear and to to kind of just focus on punk rather than survival and punk yeah 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 and it's like it doesn't matter how much money you make later like once a punk always a punk or something yeah absolutely yeah and that's the uniting <laughs> thing and it's and it's all there in the same time like it's all like intertwined with like it's like punk has to hold both things at the same time it's like this art school thing at the same time it's the street rock and roll thing it's this giant stadium blink 182 show at the same time as the diy basement show like like yeah. this, you're, it's this paradox like you talked about earlier that it's it's constantly in play yeah exactly and i i do also think like i think about how important the 70s was in terms of just like like you know glam rock and and, and kind of these like earlier iterations um and how you know that is something that also i think melodically lives on in the music like yeah. I, i've recently got you know, became obsessed with like squeeze and, and cheap trick and, you know, kind of these, these bands that were like maybe a little more peripheral to like hardcore punk, but, um, but yeah, it kind of had this, this like kind of ecstatic ADHD energy. Um, yeah. The spirit I think shows up in my music. You might not be able to hear it, 
<laughs> well, I think I, 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 you know. the early stuff, especially like, obviously it still shows up. Um, but like in your early stuff, like the, the, like you're talking about that sort of like anti music approach to making beautiful music, which, mm-hmm. um, Jennifer from Royal trucks was on the podcast. And she talked about how that's what she heard when she heard discharge, she heard discharge, writing these perfect pop songs, but burying them under noise and, and chaos. Um, and that was her inspiration for Royal Trucks. And I think that's, you know, the kind of the idea of like subverting music is one of the great things that punk did or give opportunity for people to subvert music. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I love Jennifer Rama. Oh, he, like one of the greatest bands ever, Royal Trucks. And just like talk about cool. I know they were just impenetrably cool. It's so impenetrably cool. Like, it's like the Fonzie on Happy Days, but in real life, in a way. How is um, Neil Haggerty doing? Did he ever get out of jail? I don't know. I know there was that Kickstarter thing uh, that was going on, but you know, like, and that's like you were talking about. I guess once, like we're talking about the paradox stuff. Like that's the other thing with that band. Like as cool as they were, there was also like a tragedy that runs through that band the whole way. That like, what could have been? Yeah. I mean, even like the Gen X, I feel like Gen X is like one of those things, a generation with punk baked into it. And I do think that, yeah, we've witnessed a lot of Gen Xers with very short lifespans who had the same kind of rock status as like a Roger Waters or somebody is like a big boomer king. But those boomers are just like still going. Yeah. Like you look at the Ramones and like everyone from the original lineup's dead. Yeah, exactly. That that I think is really telling because. Yeah, they couldn't necessarily buy back those years of hard living. Mm-hmm. And it's and it is like it can be hard, right? Like the, the the touring and even if you're not partying, it's just like even just the touring and the kind of like high energy thing of it. Like I can imagine that would have aged Joey and aged Johnny and, and look what it did to Dee Dee. 100 percent. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So who are some of the local bands that you were gravitating towards back then when you first started going to these shows? There's this band called Rex Harley and the Predicaments, and they were kind of just really classic-y punk. There was um, this hardcore band called Mammoth that had like six or seven singers. (laughs) And they would all just go crazy, and they were really straight edge. And that was like a... I mean, it was like, you know, you'd go there to mosh and stuff, and, and the flow of like a good mosh pit and the, the kind of like the ballet of like how it feels and how it flows watching a band with six singers was is like the band was the mosh pit, you know, and mm-hmm. that was, you know, fascinating getting all tangled up in the mic cable. Um, I saw this band fat worm of error, which was like kind of a more experimental noise band from Chicago area that, uh, you know, kind of had punk qualities. And that show was particularly wild seeing lightning bolt, um, I don't know. There were so many weird little bands. And I think as somebody that just wanted my own band so bad, 
I never became like a super fan or a groupie of a local band. I would put on shows and like make flyers and, you know, do the cut and I, you know, camp out at Staples or FedEx and, uh, you know, just like occupy the photocopier for an hour and make like crazy handbills and flyers and yeah, just try to kind of group weird bands together and, and think of it. It was like this magical recipe of six bands and the order they would play. Like, I think that, that really was what um, inspired me the most was kind of like generating the community. And then as soon as I figured out that nobody wanted to be in a band with me, I started, you know, doing my solo music and that's when like kind of folk and stuff really took off for me out of necessity because I couldn't really find people to be in a punk band with. Did you, I was going to say, did you ever have a punk band prior to? I had like kind of different, like I would, you know, I was in a band and they kicked me out because they're like, you should play bass. And I'm like, well, I'm a guitar player. You know, I think they kicked me out from based on some sexist vibes. Um, it was just, my town was just really bro -y. So it was like, mm -hmm. I, I would come to the practice with my guitar and like a delay pedal and a loop pedal kind of being like, let's go crazy. Like, have you guys heard of Sonic Youth? You know, and they were just like, we're just like trying to, you know, sound exactly like this other grindcore band or something. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny because yeah. it's changed. It seems like it's changed so much. Like, I'm obviously not very engaged with uh, DIY all ages show space anymore. But at the same time, like anytime I do kind of like see stuff, I'm always like, yeah, it seems like a lot less broy now yes i was in a band called satanized when i was 18 that was kind of like a metal math band that was definitely like i made it more punk <laughs> by doing something different every time we played like one time i had fake like breast implants in my shirt that were like filled with lime green temper paint yeah and I popped them in the middle of the set and got temper paid all over everybody's gear. And, you know, like I had a, a trash bag once of like bananas and red corn syrup and I ripped it out of my stomach. Like I would do crazy <laughs> things and they actually would get upset with me because they're like, can't you just like write lyrics and just do the same thing, you know, every show. And I was always like, no, this is like my performance art band, you know, like. Um, so I, I did. That was the closest thing, I think to me being in a punk band that's awesome uh, i would have uh satanized would have been my favorite band back then i think <laughs> there might be like a weird scronky youtube video of, of some of it but oh i gotta i'm gonna do a dive after this thing um but like philly did have i guess once again we're talking philadelphia um which i imagine is a bit of a, a hike but it, it feels like that scene does wind up being like a, a cool interesting weirder punk scene like it did have bands that were doing more traditional takes on genre but you know at the same time like kurt vile or piss jeans or or landed or screaming females like there's a lot of people that were taking it different places that were coming out of that scene at a certain point i think philly is just so remarkable and special because it doesn't have the pressure of like a um you know, a New York or a LA, but it ha it's a major city. It's kind of like one of the poorest, majorest cities. Um, and there's a lot of decay. And so out of the decay, I always believe that's like where you get the real fertile kind of subcultures. 
you know, like West Philly would be these huge old decrepit Victorian houses rented by punks mm-hmm. and people would squat in some of the buildings and then turn them just into living spaces. And yeah, because it was this dying city, there was, you know, a lot of life because it was so cheap and, and just so, you know, easy to convert warehouse spaces and Victorian houses into venues. I find it interesting too, because this city, it feels like it, it it influences the music in a way too that comes out of it. Like it's very, you know, whether it be that band Ink and Dagger or that band Ruins that used to dress in robes or Rambo with their sets, or it's a very theatrical kind of take on, on music, even on a DIY level. Yeah. Well, I think that's maybe to me, I always felt infected by the Victorian architecture and kind of the more spooky ghosts that lived in Philadelphia. It has a colonial energy in a really terrifying way. Um, And yeah, I kind of sensed, you know, I was wearing a lot of high collar kind of button up Victorian dresses at those punk shows um, strictly because I wanted to match the buildings, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Cause it does have that. It's that sense of history. And then also like you brought up earlier, I interviewed Nancy Brill, uh, today who wrote that uh, great book I'm not holding your coat about putting on shows in Philly back when she was like a kid in the early 80s and stuff wow um, a great book it's a it's a really quick read but fantastic book but she was talking about how poor the city was and how that you know and, and violent the city was too and it wasn't necessarily like punks could ever fight each other because they were being you had to worry about the cops you know like the cops fucking blew up the move house they're Philadelphia police are no joke. Yeah, no, it's real. And I, I had a lot of, I mean, I lived in Baltimore after Philly, which to me is like another version of Philly, but like mm. more Southern. And there were definitely friends of, I mean, a lot of people I knew in Philly got mugged, but the one friend I had that was almost beaten to death was in Baltimore. Um, so yeah, there was, there was a lot of violence. Yeah. And I imagine with punk too, it just, you know, you go to places where, violence is a reality and and sometimes it spills into the scene or you're coming and going from shows and yeah it's it's um it's interesting though how much has changed now like i wonder like in terms of finding spaces like you look at like brooklyn waterfront or you look at parts of philadelphia or, or parts of toronto even where i am like how much has changed like the cities have there's there's very little decrepit spaces to kind of punk flourish type thing now yeah we have no practice spaces here well i think in general with the what's happened with um you know i think the ghost ship fire in oakland was like a big moment in terms of like the final nail in the coffin for the diy that just kind of swept through and shut down all the remaining little tiny weird venues that weren't really allowed to be there Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah. And then COVID kind of wa- wiped out a lot of those lower tier kind of bar level venues. And we're just living in a, a great deficit of, of concert space. And I think even before the ghost ship fire, there was also this dwindling attendance that I think has a lot to do with social media, where when you used to go to a show, it was the center of the universe. It's like everybody was creating their own sun they were using the same kind of ideas like, okay, we have the 
place we have shows, we have bands that sound like this and we dress like this, you know, a lot of similar ideas, but you'd go to the show and think that was the only place in the world you needed to be mm-hmm. at that moment. And I think the phones kind of created this energy of where else could I be? Or like, who else do I want to show this to? Or is there something better going on elsewhere? Or like, what are these other people doing? Um, and that created a, an energy of distraction and, and just kind of like a, a lack of vitality in the shows and the, and the people's interactions with each other at the shows. And a good friend of mine in Nashville made this hilarious t-shirt that said, yes, I love DIY. And then DIY is spelled out as don't think I'll go to your show, (laughs) you know? And I mean, I think also part of the fault of it is like, you know, with, with kind of the deconstruction of, of, you know, structured music into noise and chaos and improvisation, Somewhere along the way, a lot of people maybe stopped trying as hard. And so I will say the shows probably did get less good. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think a lot of that had to do with this kind of like, yeah, this idea that there might be something better. It's almost like the the culture became less naive. It became more self-aware of itself. Like you look at pictures of people in the early aughts, it's like it doesn't look like they looked in a mirror to make sure they were like selfie ready, you know? And so the social media culture also created a gloss that just made that DIY stuff seem less appealing of like, Oh, it's a group of like unshowered misfits with no sense of style, like looked a whole lot sexier, you know, before we were all taking pictures of it all the time. Like we were just taking like Polaroids or film pictures or like, you know, weird digital pictures. It was, it was different than like cell phones and selfies and, all that stuff really changed everything. Yeah, like now you can be a participant in the culture without ever actually engaging with the culture. And I say this as an out-of-touch parent of three in a full-time band, so I'm definitely not as active as I should be in my local scene, uh, to say it mildly. But at the same time, you can do that now and still feel like you're a part of the scene because, like you're saying, you just look in your phone and you know you can listen to the bands you don't have to even buy the records at the record store anymore you can just kind of fully divorce yourself from the reality and have a virtual reality diy existence yeah which i doubt in my heart i think that's not really the real thing but i don't know what it's like to be a little kid i don't know what the kids are feeling so it it's it ultimately it's so, I don't know, like, I feel like anytime I talk about it, I feel like I'm being judgmental. So I try not to. And I've got like a 14 year old now. So I'm definitely very cautious of like, you know, raining on his parade about things. But it, it's hard not to because like, having these physical spaces, you know, you could build community in like a, a different kind of way. And like now, you know, you go to find out what a show where a show's happening, there's like a million other distractions that hit you, like advertisements for movies or other things. And it's just, it seems like it's going to weaken the thing. But then again, I'm, I'm older and not as involved. So what do I know? I, I know. I think it has weakened the thing. It's, it's made it kind of um, less uh, vital, but then, you know, maybe there'll be another cycle where it, like I was really hoping that would be what the pandemic did, like somehow push people into hanging out IRL more. And I think for a moment it, it did. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think the problem lies within kind of like the goal of, of the youth now versus the goal of us. Like, I think the goals have really changed. 
I think it's also like the consumer is is super served now too, and and choices. There's so many bands on tour, and like you were saying earlier, like you you when you were curating these shows you were putting on, you know you'd have different types of bands, and it would be where would you place these bands? Now you show up in a town, there's like four bands that are in your genre playing that night, or there's <laughs> oh yeah art, yeah totally yeah, yeah you know it's just like yeah it, no we've been flooded for sure yeah yeah. Yeah, like the pandemic reminded every band that broke up that, hey, it was no big deal. Maybe we should get back together. Oh, it's a lot to take in. I feel like there's so many different. Um, yeah, like I would kind of secretly hope that. Um, well, I also think punk might have really died. Um, you know, with kind of the more pop punk stuff. The pop punk was the greatest paradox of all kind of. And I mean, and, and I think that is, you know, what continues. And that's why mainstream culture, like the biggest confusion I have, and I think a lot of other people have, is seeing people that are dressed alternatively that are 100% mainstream. Mm -hmm. Like being a little alternative, you know, kind of since the 90s has slowly become like the mainstream. Like, yeah, you have a couple tattoos. You, you know, you might have pink hair, but you could be the straightest, you know, person in the book. Like, there's no signifiers externally to kind of show if somebody is like a square or not. And, and that is like, uh, is very interesting and, and very much paving the way for a different form of expression to rebel. Like rebellion has to take on this other quality. And I feel like, yeah, like I feel like that is, you know, like the, the, the aesthetic is completely divorced from the media yeah. at this point. Totally, totally. And and maybe that's because we just live in, in kind of a soup of aesthetics. And yeah, they will know, they unfortunately trying to find a way to make us make that aesthetic statement um, is very difficult. But maybe I, I dressing went, really square. I don't know. Yeah, Normcore. Well, yeah, Normcore. <laughs> that's where that came out of, right? And like, and I think it's interesting because like you brought up the pop punk stuff, but it's interesting how you need those pop punk on ramps. You need those. Obviously Nirvana is a cool band that very much directly is part of that culture, but you need those moments where those type of bands get hugely popular to wind up populating these DIY spaces because like not everyone's going to stick around, but some of those kids are going to wind up building the next scene. For sure. And that's why I feel bad that I never had like a big Avril Lavigne or like some 41 moment. I think I definitely, I caught a little Blink-182 moment, but I think in general, like when I meet kids who are younger than me that, you know, had moments with those bands, yeah, I feel like they can occupy the space a little bit more comfortably while I have this ethos that kind of stems back to like dinosaur times where it's like, it's still hard for me to accept gigs and do things out of fear of selling out, even though yeah. now it's just common practice and encouraged to sell out so it's like there is like a strange um yeah the paradox continues that punk would become this like kind of sexy mall thing after all of that you know hard work to make it kind of the most ultimate anti-culture it became like yeah a fully conformed thing i think though you and people like yourself and myself were lucky that we had, or, or maybe it's privileged enough to have parents that had cool taste in music or were already like, so we didn't like, I, I Nirvana happened around me and I, and I obviously love Nirvana, but like, I didn't have that Nirvana moment. Like I think in the same way you're talking about 
these other bands when everyone was getting into it i was already, i it was already all around me like i already yeah, 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 yeah felt connected to it so i don't think i needed it and it sounds like kind of in the same way you didn't really need it because it had already been in your life the whole time well i i think by puberty i really needed it mm-hmm. i mean i i think by well, I, once that kind of grunge culture began to die, that's when it was, it became really important because it was like, what was happening in the mainstream was just so whack. Like those years, the late nineties, early aughts, even though there's incredible, you know, Bjork and Radiohead and kind of more like cyber weird albums that I think are some of the best ever. Um, just the the culture being so focused on boy bands and and you know Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera um and and you know weird like kind of novelty songs it just felt like a very you know depraved moment culturally well it was like that was when they you know kind of coined millennial the establishment generation like the generation just just eats up whatever is put on its plate so I felt like I really had to rebel in that moment. I was like, okay, this is getting really bad. Like we gotta, we gotta figure this out. <laughs> yeah. And I meant more like you didn't need it in the musical sense or being exposed to it musically that these bands kind of serve that purpose for people or the aesthetic. Was oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In your world. There is this sort of, uh, this moment in the late two thousands where there's a sort of cynicism and you see it now there's like a real death of a critical sphere. Like there's no one, to be like oh no this sucks because of this reason not and i'm not saying like people that say this sucks because of like some weird you know social hang-up that they have that they can't get past them but i'm talking about like you know like the the critical sphere for film and and music it just doesn't really exist anymore well yeah definitely it's difficult with music um yeah like nobody nobody knows who to trust and mm-hmm. I think journalism just got so bad that it's hard to think any of it is repu- reputable, which I don't know whose fault that is. You know, it's like maybe they had too many Buzzfeed articles or something. I think that's the thing is like, it's that bought period, you know, where co- yeah. all these corporations were buying ad space and, and uh, you, you didn't know like, well, is someone paying for this review? It wasn't like Lester bangs or, hell even like toby vale doing her zine writing about a band like you couldn't trust these people because you're like is this co-opted is this like you're saying like that fear of the sellout yeah and that's a guilt that we carry our whole lives from punk that's that's punk burden for us the punk burden i love that i have a lot of those you know but i also feel like i've come to a point where i've grown out of um a lot of things about punk as well which that. is hard which is hard to talk about but yeah like i feel like i've seen the dead end of it and so like a part of me didn't stay with with the aesthetics because i saw that it also in its in its own way you know had a ceiling but i think that's the ceiling that just certain people impose on it right because like i think like we were talking about it can be folk it can be noise it can be whatever people wanted to be and that's what it was in the beginning too right with like all these original artists it's just like and that's the thing is i think you brought in the punk conversation and you brought your sound like because you are punk you made punk have your sound you know like you you just push the boundary further well yeah yeah but i mean at the same time like it's kind of like where do you 
create the boundary, like where do you draw the definition? I, I think I meant more like the, um, yeah, kind of the aesthetic idea of classic punk, I think in some ways, once it became pop punk and once it became so deeply um, assimilated into the culture, it no longer serves like the same purpose. Like, I, I don't think it's as radical, unfortunately, based on, you know, where we're at at this moment. Like, I don't think you could use the same, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I obviously the ideas, you know, kind of continue on, but I, I feel like even the word itself might have, have become um, a, a bit of a cliche, which is unfortunate, you know, Um but I just think as, as we continue to evolve as a culture and as our technology continues to evolve, it's like, we kind of have to keep thinking of revolutions and, and those revolutions will keep changing. Uh, I, I, that's why I think punk has that staying power because I think it was co-opted and dead in 1978, right? Like that's what it was. Being yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been like, co-opted and dead for a long time. It's all, all, it's all baked time, in. Yeah. It's like the matrix, <laughs> right? Like, in. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's Troy or the matrix is just built onto the ruins of itself. And yeah, exactly. It dies and then comes back because some kid finds it, you know, a reason to, to sit by that photocopy machine. I think you're right. I, but I, I think I also, I see how, you know, in some ways as nostalgia becomes this like greater force, you know, as things continue to change in ways that we wish they wouldn't. Um, I don't think OG punks were particularly nostalgic. I think they were kind of more futurists. Um, but it's like that when the future looks so dystopian, I think it's difficult for people to, yeah, like invent a new aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of people, you know, like this weird thing that I, I, I try to understand, but it's really difficult. It's like when everybody became so nostalgic for the nineties, that the aesthetics kind of came back in this way. I think that always happens. But for me, it was like, it was particularly jarring because I was like, you know, deciding to dress like George from Stein Seinfeld is um, like our new form of rebellion, which is like, like the nineties was the most like corporate <laughs> neoliberal decade. So it's like, I, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I definitely, I, but I find it more terrifying that you see people that want to dress like Fred Durst in the early two thousands now. Well, that, yeah, well, that's, <laughs> it just keeps cycling through. Yeah. It just keeps cycling through. So it's like, there is, there is this like, this kind of feedback loop that culture finds itself in that I think in some ways I, I would say that it's maybe lacking innovation. And I don't know if that's because the internet or because, you know, I kind of get into the philosophies of this writer in the UK named Mark Fisher. Um, he had this thing called hauntology mm -hmm. where basically because capitalism became so good at selling us back our nostalgia um, because that is the most profitable um, margin point. And you can see it now with all the movies being about old IP and like old nostalgic toys and superheroes. Like they know the note they want to hit. And it kind of robbed us of having this future. It's like I kind of grew up thinking there was going to be this wave after Nirvana that was going to be, you know, like maybe a, a noise band with zero structure was going to, you know, pop onto the mainstream or something like 
I remember asking my dad when Matchbox 20 and Spice Girls were like thriving. I'm like, is there going to be another wave? And he looked at me and he said, oh, there's always another wave. But, you know, there wasn't. And in some ways, the next wave after that was kind of this like weird hybrid kind of strokesy, you know, the band, the strokes, like it was, it was kind of like, like super nostalgia indie sleaze. Um, I'm not doing the best with adjectives right now, but you know, no, I, I mean. I, I, exactly what you're saying. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so it's like Mark Fisher kind of believes we were robbed of this imaginary future where we would kind of have, you know, our own aesthetic, uh, cultural generational I- identity to add to the conversation. And instead we're kind of living in this perpetual, um, you know, feedback loop where it's like nothing new, like, because nothing will die, you know, decay being the source of life, you know, nothing can truly live. Like when a cell phone dies, you can't reappropriate it and turn it into an instrument. When a laptop dies, you can't like take the parts out, but when a tape machine dies, you know, you can fix it and turn it into something else. Or when you have like, um, a VHS you don't use, you can copy a video onto it or a tape, you can copy something onto it. And that I think that was so a part of the OG punk culture of this, like kind of taking this dead thing and making it alive. But there is something inherently built into our culture now that is so chlorinated that nothing can die and therefore nothing can live. Hmm. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. But And I feel... I feel like very much in line with what you're saying. I, I think the, the one that I, I look to in terms of that artist with no structure that gets popular, like Lil Uzi Vert and people like that, who once again, it's not necessarily the music that I listen to, but to me, it's like, wow, this doesn't even sound like a song. It just sounds like, like noise in a lot of ways, or like, you know, like people taking old game boys and turning them to glitch music and making it like glitch techno i think it's called i once again this is i feel very out of my wheelhouse talking about this stuff um where people do find a way i know what you're saying it's like not necessarily in the nirvana way anymore because i think also we just don't have a mass media to disseminate one message like we did when nirvana blew up yeah yeah there's a lot of shared experience Mm -hmm. yeah like and i think it's like but also like you said it did get capitalism got really good and i don't want to i feel a lot of these movies you can't even criticize because if you criticize them, it seems like you're criticizing them for the, the positive messaging that's within the movie. But at the same time, there's like a a wave of like corporate celebration films that have come out and, and basically commercials like, yeah, you know, for a product and you watch it and it, it does have great messaging in a lot of ways and great representation. So I obviously don't want to discount that. But also at the same time, like at the end of the day, it's trying to sell you a product and that could be a toy or it could be a, an Air Jordan shoe in the term in the Jordan movie that came out about Air Jordans or it could be it. I don't know. There just feels like like you're saying it's it has robbed us of a culture, certainly in film. Like, I, I feel like this is like a lost film generation, it, way worse than music. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel I, like I watch that stuff and I'm like, I took my kids to see some movies recently and I'm like, this is, wow, this is really bleak compared to music. At least music still feels like there's hope. That's so great to hear. That's so, cause I feel that I feel always like, ah, oh, man, like at least like film people still, you know, have all the same kind of structures. I feel like music with streaming in the digital age has become so, um, 
just like, yeah, like um, hard to to quantify. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been not hard to quantify. This has been an amazing conversation. (laughs) Cool. I love uh, talking about this stuff. I could talk about it for years. Well, that's what I was going to say. I don't want to keep you all day, but anytime you want to come back on, talk about any of this stuff, the door is always open to you. Awesome. I'm going to go back and listen to your Jello Biafra um, convos. Oh, you got it. They are some wild convos. But before I let you go, I got to ask you about one of the original punks that you worked with who's come up on the show several times over the years. What was it like working with John Cale? It was so incredible. Um, he's, He's a really amazing person. He's still so sharp and so innovative and weird and just he's I feel like I can identify with him a lot because I also come from kind of a classical music appreciation background. And I feel like he manages to be that paradox where he can kind of take, you know, he's kind of like as punk as you can get while also, you know, appreciating Brahms and and all this kind of older um you know, the, the, the oldest lineage of all, like he kind of goes back with Paris 1919 to like the salons and, you know, we didn't even get to talk about punk in the 19th century, but like, I think it's been around forever. Um, so yeah, I think that he kind of exhibits that timeless quality and it was really inspiring. Well, this has been inspiring. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Natalie, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Natalie will be back at some point in the future for a part two to talk about more. The future on Turning a Punk, speaking of which, looks very bright. Very bright indeed. Because coming up on the next episode, to celebrate both of our birthdays, September the 16th, if you want to send a present, from the band Built to Spill, Doug March will be here. You might know him as Doug Built to Spill, around these parts we call them Doug Tree People well both Doug Built Spill and Tree People both fantastic bands an unbelievable guest this episode goes and we we dig up all sorts of connections and it and it we have a really fun conversation I'm excited for you to hear it well that's it for me remember as always uh, Black Lives Matter the lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter we need to protect trans people and their rights and, and help them protect themselves and protect trans kids. Stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, different races, different sexual sexualities, different genders. All, knock all the hate and violence because we're not ta- out. I mean, because we're not talking about political issues here. We're talking about basic human rights. People deserve to be free and to live their lives free from hatred and discrimination and violence. Uh, I would also add to this, we need to make sure that we protect people's right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. So if there's an organization out there in your community that's affecting positive change, get involved, donate your time. If you have it, you can donate some money, I'm sure. Uh, and it'll just, just help you feel better about the gl- overall state of the world if you can kind of start it moving in a positive direction. Speaking of doing positive things, punk is a culture based on your involvement. So get involved. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast do something. Uh, if you don't see something in that world that you want to see, make it. Uh, if you sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. It's literally dead weight at that point. And I've seen it perform miracles. And after all this heavy conversation, try meditating. I didn't believe in it. And then I tried it. And now, oh my gosh, I'm convinced 
breathing and meditation works. <laughs> I know people have been saying this for a very long time, but it took me a long time to get on board. So if you're like myself and have been resistant to trying this sort of stuff, try it. You don't have to, I'm not telling you to do one thing or another thing. Like just try a YouTube thing, you know, just try it. All right. That's it for me. I'm so tired. So I'm sorry if this has been uh, a little bit convoluted and I will see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.